Yes, it is I, your humble host, Bill Hatch the Third, coming to you live from the Palatial Home Studios of All Spots Productions here in the beautiful city of Santa Ana, California. For yet another episode of Live. Oh, no, no, wait. This is not quite after midnight. Oh, goodness. I almost forgot what show I was doing. <laughs> Joining Too many me, shows. as per the usual, is my in studio, is my friend, my brother in Christ, the disembodied voice of Rudy. And joining us from more than acceptable safe social distances are my guests for today. We have Mr. Alan Meisner. How are you doing, Alan? Where are you coming from? I live on a Caribbean island uh, off the coast of Panama mm -hmm. called Bocas del Toro. So, yeah, I did what everybody says they're going to do and sell all my stuff and just move to a Caribbean island. And so that's where my <laughs> wife and I are now. <laughs> nice. That is awesome. And uh, and also, um, and my other guest for today is William Collier. William, where are you calling from? Oh, uh, Central Texas right now. Home Central is where Texas. the butt is, you know. Okay, that's where my father went. to uh, get his second master's degree from was from the University of Central Texas. So I know right about the general area where that is. <laughs> all, all my exes are in Tennessee. Yeah, but you don't live in Tennessee. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I'm uh, trying out a new opening question. What are you gentlemen reading? Oh. Reading. Don't everybody talk um, once. Most recently, <laughs> uh, DWI investigations. DWI investigations. What is the, what yeah. is that? Uh, it's a manual for how to do driving while intoxicated investigations. Okay, cool. I think that. <laughs> no, no, that's not until Friday. Sorry. I'm sorry. That's, oh, that's because it, it it's not 10 o'clock yet. My I have my phone set to go to Do Not Disturb at, uh, at the top of the hour. And uh, we started early. Both of your guests two are guys, early. Yeah, you got two guys who, who want to be on time. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> if you can't be on time, be early. Well, so on William, time is late. and <laughs> Yeah, if you're, yeah. Uh, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're forgotten. Yep. That is for sure. And uh, Mr. Misner, um, yeah. Misner, so Meisner, Meisner, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm Meisner. reading a book uh, by Katie Bowman. Uh, she's a movement specialist. Um, I'll be interviewing her in a few days. Uh, so that's one of the things about my podcast uh, is that I actually read every single book for every guest that I've had on the podcast. So wow. I read roughly about two books a week. Uh, okay. One for my podcast, one for personal development, or occasionally I'll throw in some fiction there just for fun. Good. Well, you got to have some fun sometimes. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> uh, fiction is more important than people give it credit for. Yeah, it is. That is, uh, that is for sure. But uh, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of non a lot of non-fiction authors on the uh, on the show a lot of fiction authors on the show now too and uh, um yeah they have uh yeah it's the it's it's interesting the process people go through to um to write to actually produce the the material 
and uh, um, and the better ones put a lot of thought into it. But, uh, yeah. So what? Uh, what's fact, your the better oh, ones? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. In the fact, here's a funny story. When I was in high school, uh, our, our school didn't have a, a physics class. Okay. But there was a, a competition statewide for the school to send people up to compete for the best, you know, in each of the different fields of math and science. So they had us take aptitude tests, and I scored highest in the class, highest in the school for physics, having never taken a physics exam or any kind of physics class in my life. <laughs> and so the teacher came to me and said, we really want you to, um, to represent the school for physics. And I told her, I said, well, you know, I, I've never had a physics class. She said, well, you did actually pretty good on the exam. How did you do that? I said, I read science fiction. And so you're right. Yeah. These authors really sometimes spend that extra time to understand how these things work. And just that it just happened through the books that I had read. I guess, you know, maybe you're not supposed to believe fiction is true. But if an <laughs> author does their job well, they've learned the, the, the reality behind the fiction and are really teaching you without it feeling like you're being taught. Yeah. Can I ask you, pardon me, sir, can I ask you what, okay. uh, what your, was your science fiction of choice back then? Uh, it would be Asimov, um, you know, that kind of thing. I did also, of course, you know, you go through Fahrenheit 541 and, you know, all the other different things that were out. I was pretty voracious. Like foundation, foundation trilogy guy, uh, I'm I tried to I tried to get into Tolkien and just couldn't do it. Uh, I tried to get into Dune and just couldn't do it. Uh, so there were some that I really struggled with. But uh, yeah, I I was uh, you know if I wasn't practicing a sport and doing something physical outside, I was I was in my room reading a book. That was that was pretty oh, wow. much me. <laughs> Very good, very good. That's uh, Asimov and uh, uh, if you're talking for Fahrenheit for uh, whatever it is, uh, that's good. Good choices, though. Good taste in science fiction. <laughs> every every paperback, they had a paperback swap at the library, and I'd literally just go and just every every single one that came through, I, I picked it up and went through and read it and put it back and tried to get another one. So, yeah. Very good. Well, Very good. I, I know, uh, uh, well, rather, you know, television show, not, uh, not originally a, a book, but... Uh, I think Star Trek really set the bar pretty high for that kind of uh, that kind of thing in science fiction. Um, now that uh, that people are studying everything from uh, from warp theory to uh, <laughs> to to uh, um, what do they call the thing where they uh, oh that's terrible that I can't remember where they produce the the food and and it was called the replicator replicator, the replicator. wow yeah. i can't believe i didn't i'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm terrible my my I, favorite I of the said, series yeah. is uh is deep space nine um but, but uh um those are good those are good but there's yeah, definitely yeah, no substitute for the clarks and asimovs of literature yeah yeah. I like to say, Nano uh, Nano. <laughs> yeah, I okay. remember that one too. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, didn't, I didn't like science fiction. I never watched uh, Star Wars because when I was a kid, they said we should find cars. And I think they lied to me. <laughs> there are a few flying cars. They're 
they're, they're, not, they're actually models. working on that. Yeah, Samson yeah. Motors actually has uh, gotten pretty close to having a prototype ready. Uh, the sad part was I actually got on the waiting list uh, back in 2012 uh, to be the first one. And they were like, it'd be about a year out. And then they were going to start <laughs> taking deposits. Uh, and then they started taking deposits on those things uh, probably around 2014. Uh, they still haven't produced a working model uh, yet. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people put a lot of money in there and are sitting there wondering if they're ever going to get their flying car. But they, they, are, they are developing some cars that fly uh, or base, basically convert to light wing planes, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the flying cars, the flying cars are going to be like, um, kind of like AI, kind of like uh, what's another technology recent VR. Um, they're going to get it working, and then they're going to find out it doesn't work at all, like the science fiction writers thought it was going to work. It's not going to do what they thought it was going to do. It's not going to be usable the way they thought, and it's going to be a big surprise. Yeah. So it'll come. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Well, I, and I just, I just don't think you can have people doing different. it. I, I just think you're going to struggle if you have people doing it. You know, because no. they, you know, <laughs> they can't even drive an automobile right now without traffic fatalities. Mm -hmm. And if you yeah. add speed when, and height to that crash, um, yeah, power <laughs> lines, trees, yeah. buildings, weather, right. microbursts. <laughs> You know, so it's, instrument conditions. Yeah, that'll have yeah. to be autonomous. There's just no way. Yeah. I mean, you could if someone was a licensed pilot and flying under certain conditions. But there, to me, there's just no way. You know, you see the like in Star Wars or whatever, and you see the plane, you know, flying vehicles and they're all going in their lines and they're merging from below and above. And uh, that just that you wouldn't be piloting yeah. that yourself. No. <laughs> Mr. Meisner, did you ever ever do any flying or pilot license or anything like that? Seems like the kind I, of thing you might get into. I, I started, I actually started uh, trying to take some license, uh, pilot le lessons, and I, I started working through it. It was a half an hour drive from where I work, where I lived, mm -hmm. uh, to get to the nearest place to take a course and do this. And so I'd signed up with this guy, and I'm like, okay, look, September's coming up. And I said, I'm not traveling. I'm willing to put in eight hours on Saturday and four hours every evening to get this done. And he's like, cool. And so the first the first day comes up and he's like, well, we've got a problem with the aircraft. We've got to go into maintenance. And then, oh, well, now we've got a, a, a red flag on it when they check the maintenance and they've got to order a part and they got to do this. So by the time, I mean, September was over before I had access to the plane again. So at that point, I was like, until I'm ready to buy a plane, it just didn't make sense. <laughs> For me well, to even worry about it. Yeah, but... if it's a, if it's one guy with one plane, you know, it's another thing. If yeah. you're if you're going to find a, a flight school, they've got a, a fleet of aircraft, and you're going to be able to get up regularly. But that's yeah. the way that was over is, an hour sure. away. Yeah, that was over an hour away, and they had it structured where yeah, you come in for an hour, and I'm like, I'm not going to drive for an hour to take a one hour class and then drive back home and and try to do that and get my hours in because it just, it didn't make sense. So never yeah. really did, but um, the, the idea was there that I would eventually maybe try I'm, to own a plane, but that's. Might, that, might look back into it because <laughs> it does seem, it does seem like the kind of thing you'd enjoy. You could do like light sport, yeah. something real simple and just putter around the islands. Well, yeah, yeah. But uh, there's not many places for me to go and land and uh, there's no place for me to store it here. So. Mm. I'm on a little Caribbean island, and um, it, there's not even a hangar. Yeah, there's not even a hang No, you wouldn't want to do that either. This is surf surf lessons place. This is <laughs> this is not a plane lessons. Oh, okay. Oh, and I'm sure I'm sure the local school would would be in Spanish, and that would be problematic. The guy's yelling at me in Spanish, and I'm not understanding where he wants me to do. And 
probably not going to do very well. You know, here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a billion dollar idea. Make a car like a drone because we already got that figure that works. You don't have to have that. And then the, the billion dollar idea is to make a parachute. And Maybe it'd be better if the parachute is... came out before you crashed. You know, the longer you press that button, you're scared. <laughs> Your co-host is almost inaudible on my end. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I was yelling at you in Spanish. <laughs> I would have been well, able to detect this, that. This is, the, this is the first time we've been able to hear ourselves, so uh, um, so it's a little uh, a little strange for him. Um, I've done uh, radio before, and you always hear yourself, but uh, this is the first time I've plugged us into the one where we can hear ourselves. So he's probably being quiet because he can hear himself. You got to be louder, Rooney. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because it does sound loud to me. <laughs> I still think, I think he's coming in. I think he's coming into your microphone. I don't think he's yeah. coming in. If he has his own there, back there's there. Only, not... There's only one microphone. Okay. Yeah, he got, okay. He's got to get. Get up on How it. About, oops. Get up on it. Hey, careful. Can you hear me? Well, I can hear you moving the microphone. Can you hear me, guys? That's better. better. That's better. Okay, because I'm the talent of this program, and I just <laughs> don't want to be silenced. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, yeah, um, yeah, the safety. Yeah, the people flying car, flying the cars is the is is the biggest part of that problem. I think. Uh, I mean, the FAA would have to clear everybody to uh, be able to fly in order to have flying cars actually flying. Well, they're they're yeah, trying to make them happening. light wings. Yeah, they're trying to make them yeah. light wings, which actually doesn't require a license. But uh, like the Samson one, you actually had to go to an airport to take off. You weren't able to just go out of your driveway and just do it. Uh, you had to go to the airport to take off. So, yeah. again, not not completely feasible um, no, as no. of yet. But you know, it, it's yeah. it's available. If they wanted to make one, they could. Um, I just yeah. again, I don't I don't see them being mainstream. Uh, we might not ever see them mainstream. But uh, right, yeah, I'm surprised that something Musk hasn't uh, jumped on yet and promised. <laughs> He's promised all sorts of stuff. I'm surprised he hasn't promised that yet. <laughs> He's a little busy tweeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Oh, what a waste of time. <laughs> well, I don't know. He he gets a lot of people talking about things, and I I think dialogue is good. If you disagree oh, yeah. with someone, that's that's really where the opportunities to learn are. If we all just mm -hmm. sat on this show and agreed with each other the whole time, uh, we wouldn't learn anything. No, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's when you disagree with something, but you're still willing to listen. And have that conversation when you actually can change and grow. And right. most of us won't take the time to do that because we're looking for echo chambers. And that's yeah. what Twitter was before. And he's very much broken that model of an echo chamber. Uh, yeah. And you didn't need two Twitters with the Trump version and the Twitter version. Because, again, it just becomes two different echo chambers echoing an opposite message. And nobody's willing to sit down in the middle and have that conversation. Yeah. 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 I can see that. It's the, it's the disagreeing agreeably part that's, uh, that's missing people. Uh, people yeah. so far seem to just get angry when you disagree with them. <laughs> well, yeah. Because we, we've been conditioned for that. We've been conditioned to, to yeah. respond negatively 
to anybody who questions what we believe or what our narrative is. And until you just sit back and say, okay, we can agree to disagree or we can have a conversation about it. But Twitter makes that very hard because it's just too easy to be snotty and rude. Um, because so we've been conditioned by what? Uh, to distance. Be disagreeable. Distance. By distance. Yeah. You think so? Well, yeah, because you and I can disagree right now and you can't punch me in the face. But if we were sitting at a bar <laughs> having a beer <laughs> and I tell you something that you disagree with, well, now we're face to face. Now there's a, there, there would be a physical confrontation if we got too heated on it. So we're more willing to talk. We're more willing to have that conversation um, and then maybe even agree to disagree and just part ways. But on Twitter, I can, you know, people will start with the insults and then that just escalates it into worthlessness. And that's what actually 90% of Twitter is right now. I guess yeah. then the next question is what conditioned us not to just punch the weaker person in the face? Well, it wouldn't necessarily even be the weaker person. It would just be that someone cannot sit back and realize that people will believe different than them, feel different than them. And that's okay. It's almost like it can't, it's, it's a lot of people feel right now. It's not okay to not agree with me. Right. And but I, I, my a, question is why is the face-to-face -face confrontation more peaceful? Why don't we just, when we're in face-to-face -face, actually punch the guy? Well, it's social norms. We, we still have social norms. Um, they're falling apart a little bit. You see it on a regular basis where people are doing things that you're like, how, why? Um, you know, I, I've seen some extreme violence videos uh, and I'm like, you know, how does someone mentally do that to someone else? How do they dehumanize yeah. them so much? You know, in a lot that? of environments, it seems to be becoming, be becoming very easy for people to resort to physical violence in a, in an argument uh, or dispute. Yeah. I, so I don't that disagree. Might, social norm might be breaking down indeed. Yeah. And, and I agree. I think it is because, you know, we think about, I mean, I know when I was in school, uh, yeah, you might go out in the schoolyard and, and punch it out, uh, but you weren't going to keep kicking the guy in the head after he was down. Uh, you know, and unfortunately we see a lot of that now where people just or come back with a gun. Yeah. Or come back with a gun and everybody in my school had a gun in their car. You know, they literally had a gun, a, you know, gun rack <laughs> in their truck. They had a handgun and, or they had a, um, a rifle or a shotgun in their vehicle. And no one even ever thought of walking out to their car, even if they just lost a fight. Um, well, yeah, that's the, just, the old paradox. It. Back when kids actually took their guns into school, you never had school shootings. You know, it was normal for a 12-year-old yeah. to take a squirrel gun into, into class with them and nothing ever happened. So it's, like you say, social norms evolving. Yeah. And that's, sure. yeah, that's unfortunate, but it's, um, it's the world we live in. So for me, you know, it's, again, it's just listening. Uh, I, I read a lot more than I say, uh, I read a lot more than I write. Um, and I learn, I learn things. And I, I know that, uh, I am, I used to think I was sort of normal. Um, and now I don't know what normal actually is. I think <laughs> there's just this divergence from a, 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 a classical norm that everybody had and we could all kind of agree on a lot of things together, but now it's almost like you see all, and maybe it's just because we see it more because it's on the internet, uh, but you see the extremes on both sides and you're like, okay, well, I, I don't know which one of these is crazier, but they're both sort of crazy. Um, you know, there, there's actually, um,
there's an answer to the question of normalcy that was found by the people who were making uh, uniforms for pilots in the military. Uh, they measured and uh, making cockpits that would fit people, uh, designing their cockpits. So they measured all their pilots. Yeah. Um, they measured the, the length of the shin, the length of the, the upper leg, the torso, the arms, everything. They averaged it all out. They figured out what is, what is the, the norm on each of those parameters. Uh, and they built their flight suit and their gear and their cockpit for, uh, to be, to fit like kind of middle, um, quintile of each of those parameters and it fit nobody. And what they realized mm -hmm. is that for any measurable parameter, there is a normal that most people will fit, but not a single person is normal in every parameter. And so you can never have a normal. So that's how, and it, they, you take that principle and you look across the rest of the human condition. That's how it goes for any measurable parameter of people. There's going to be a normal, but, um, nobody's going to be normal in every parameter. They're always going to have some way in which they're an outlier and they won't fit in. And I'm sure what, uh, what you experienced, what I've definitely experienced is that, um, what we thought was normal, uh, was actually an insular experience that was specific to our culture. And as um, other cultures come in, we find that much as we tried to be egalitarian, much as we tried to be multicultural, um, our cultural experience was not normal. We had a lot of assumptions that of course, everybody would believe what we believe. And we can't actually imagine what uh, someone from the Middle East believes, uh, how their minds work at a fundamental level, someone from East Asia, someone from Russia, someone from South America. And so the idea of cultural norms, it was much more scattered than we thought. And even if you can get people norm in one area, they're going to be outliers in another. Yeah, I found years ago that, uh, um, that people each have their own reality if you if you imagine it as a sphere around them um and uh and for the most part we seem to overlap our realities but there's always something um some people's realities are way skewed off than uh, than others um my uh my story i usually tell about this realization is uh back uh, in the 90s when i thought i was going to be an actor um I was out in uh, out in Hollywood and uh, uh, for a play, and uh, um, on rehearsal day, we uh, a bunch of us went to have lunch at this little sidewalk cafe thing, and uh, we're sitting there on the uh, on the patio, and a gentleman out in the middle of the you know the grassy median in the middle of the street was barking at cars, and. Uh, um, he just stood there barking at the cars, and uh, then uh, I noticed a little while later he had stopped. He had gone over to a tree and had picked up what appeared to be his lunch sack, and he was eating. And, and uh, when he finished that, he put his lunch away, and then he walked back to the edge of the grassy median and uh, began parking at cars again. And uh, so, um, you know, it occurred to me that that seemed perfectly normal to him. That was his normal was that hmm. that was his job, was to bark at cars. I'm sure at some point in the afternoon or evening, he went home, wh whatever that looked like. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, to stop and have his lunch in the middle of the day was, uh, you know, was normal. And, and to go back to barking at cars again was normal. 
So his his reality was pretty skewed from uh, from the rest of ours. But like you said, William, uh, there were some norms in his life that I could under that I could relate to directly, like stopping mm-hmm. to have lunch, and uh, um, you know. So uh, so it occurs to me that a lot of people uh, um, probably have very skewed realities from uh, from mine. I um, met a man. Uh, we met a man the other night uh, who mm-hmm. was lying in the side of on actually on the road, and we asked mm-hmm. him why. Uh, he said because he had died for his sins, and we asked him why he was talking to us now. And he said, "Well, he came back. Um, okay. He uh, some people's uh, ideas are very skewed, and some of that yes. may be the methamphetamines. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there's this bubble." concept that you're talking about, or like, I liken it to a simulator. We have these flight simulators that have the screens that go all the way around. So you're in a bubble and the world is projected on the screen on all sides. Um, and there's this solipsism in people that they're very naturally inclined to, uh, where they begin to perceive, or maybe naturally perceive the world as almost just a projection on screens around them. Everybody else is just characters in their story. Um, and they never really connect with the idea that these are other people in their own bubbles. Um, everything is just a, a photo play for their own moral, personal moral drama of life, uh, their own character arc. Um, and they never really imagine that the other folks at some deep level, they never connect with the idea that the other folks that they're seeing on the screen are real people. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, yeah. you're kind of hitting on something, you know, like a, a child, um, you, if they can't see you, you disappeared, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you could do peekaboo behind the wall and it's like, well, you know, and, and the dogs and children, uh, young children, they, they think you don't exist anymore. They don't right. think about the fact that you're out doing something somewhere else. And then you show back up. It's like you're, you were here. Now you're gone. There, there's no concept that you are continuing to do things in your own life. Um, and that, when I was, so you're saying that solipsism is, is the, the, the essential or natural component of, of human condition. And then it's social norms that condition us to actually recognize that other people are real. They can for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they well, hopefully do. do. Hopefully, you do. know, yeah, I don't think they always do, uh, because but go on. everybody, yeah. everybody seems to think they're center of the universe, um, yeah. and the most important thing on earth. Um, I remember I was I, I worked in a library when I was um, when I was in high school and college, and um, I would I would have to they called it reading books, but basically what it was was just making sure books are where they're supposed to be on the shelf. And so it would get really hot in South Mississippi, and so this guy would come in, this homeless guy, his name was Chicky Black, and he would come in, he would just take a stool and sit down while I was going through the books, and he would just start telling me stories about his life. And so I was, you know, I'd listen to his stories. And of course, then the librarian later would be like, you can't, you can't be talking to him. I'm like, I, I wasn't talking to him. I was just listening to him. And so he can sit there on a bench and talk to me. You know, am I supposed to ignore him? We don't kick him out. We let him stay here. He's in the air conditioning. Um, but one day he told me, he said, okay, well, it's time for me to go away. And I said, well, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to go to jail. And I said, okay. I said, why, why would you think that you're going to go to jail? What have you done? He said, well, I haven't done it yet, uh, but I'm going to. And I'm like, okay, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to try to rob this place, and I'm not going to do it very well. 
And I'm like, okay, why would <laughs> why would you try to rob a place and poorly and get caught? <laughs> yeah, and, and know that you're going to get caught and know that you're going to go to jail. And he says, well, he said, I'm on a disability check, and I get the check for a certain amount of time, and then they tell me that I'm not going to get the check anymore. And so he says, so then I go do something to get myself put in jail, and it's like I've got a place to stay, and I've got my meals, and they, they actually treat me pretty nice there. He said, I don't get to go where I want to go, and I, I won't be able to come here and see you, but that's what I've got to do. And, and so it's just this whole perspective of life of the, the you know, literally planning ahead for, for what he was going to do in his life. And, and I, was, I was so far removed from thinking that that was reasonable until he literally explained it to me. And then you're like, well, okay, if I was in his position and I was homeless and basically I was not going to have any money and it wasn't, you know, this was not a good panhandling town as like, people probably would have given him some money, but not like a disability check. So the dude had a cycle and a process and it, and it worked, you know, he would go spend some time in jail. He'd get out, he'd go back on disability because while he was in jail, they would do the mental assessment and, and say, okay, you know, he's not capable of work. And then they'd start giving him a check again. They let him out and then he'd be fine until his check ran out and they said, okay, you don't get it anymore. And then he would go do something silly to get himself put in jail, not hurt anybody, but just, you know, I'm going to go rob a place and get caught. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know? it, there's this whole world, uh, this, a novel of history and the simple phrase, if I was in his position, like how much of a life story got him to that position where that is a reasonable uh, cycle of choices to make. Like yeah. you or I would never be yeah. in that position because of our background, because of the way we were taught to think and reason through life's problems and, uh, and solve those problems and find purpose uh, and maybe not use certain substances, we would never get there. So yeah, you know, if I was in his position, but... I don't think he was a substance abuser. I really don't. I, I, I think uh, he was at a disadvantage from, from a, a basic point of, he was a black man uh, in South Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, at that point in time, I was, I was like 18, 19 years old. He was probably well into his forties. Um, and that he just never really had any skills. Uh, that were marketable for him to continue to do. Uh, maybe at one point he did, uh, but this was the most efficient and effective way for him to make sure that he had shelter, food, and everything that he needed. And he had a system and a process, and he followed it through. And, you know, it was just interesting that and he was telling me goodbye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was telling me goodbye because he had to go away, like he, had, like he was having to go away for work, you know, on a business trip somewhere, and he was going to, you know, be back in a few months kind of thing. Um, it was just kind of a bizarre conversation, but it, it kind of struck me, like you said, it's what's your norm, you know, and, and it's, like you said, I don't think that would, I would have ever even thought of that norm, but in his situation, would I, would I have done the same thing? And you know, yeah, if I got some, got myself in trouble trying to steal food because I couldn't buy food and then I got put in jail and they fed me, it's like, oh, I, I did this to get food and now they're giving me food. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, but, I but again, I so much would have to be different for you to be in that, that situation. You'd be a yeah, different yeah. person than you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, a norm that it made sense to him. 
And, uh, and yeah, even though it doesn't make sense to us uh, necessarily, I mean, it, it, there is a way to, to look at it, to, to figure out the logic behind it. But, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's like in my brain, I couldn't do that. It's like that's not how well, the world works or how Sure, and anyway. some things that may be logical make sense. They're efficient for the situation, but doesn't mean they're optimal. Right, right. There are maybe wiser choices well, to make. We don't necessarily look for optimal. We look for, for workable. Um, that you is know, unfortunate, uh, When something it? works, you know, if, if it works, don't fix it. Uh, was it? I saw a guy uh, uh, on YouTube uh, the other day that said, uh, if it ain't broke, I'll fix it till it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you're hitting on a very important point, is that the, the people that do optimal are that 1%. Mm. That's why yeah. they are where they are. I mean, you know, we, we were talking about Elon Musk a little earlier. Okay, Elon helped develop and build, uh, what was it, uh, PayPal. And then okay, they sold yeah. that to eBay. Okay, I don't know about you, but I use PayPal every day. Not every day, but I use Okay, and, and, and so at the point in time, it was, it was magic. Now, did Elon do all of that? No, but he was responsible for helping them put that together to optimize it, to make it what it was. And then he took that and he parlayed that into three different bets. Mm -hmm. And all yeah. three of those bets are paying off. Yeah. And now he's taking a fourth bet with Twitter. <laughs> and what does he do? He just tries to optimize it. And what is what optimizes Twitter? Engagement. So what does yeah. he do? He posts on his own platform to Stuff get more that makes people argue. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, it, and that's how he gets paid. And it's so funny. It's like people will make a post, a silly post. Like, do you support Elon Musk? And I said, by making this post, you just did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, there's, there's definitely a genius in his ability to, you say he makes a bet and all three of them paid off, but he makes a bet and then he makes it work one way or another. He knows, he knows who he's selling to the, like the electric cars. Um, so much of that is subsidized. He, so he pitched it all to the government as much as he did to, to the buyers. Um, and he knew who his real customer was. He knew what the real business model was, and he played it for everything it was worth. And, yeah. and then he optimizes, and he optimizes, mm -hmm. and he optimizes. So it's not just to have an electric car, because you can look at the history of the DeLorean and see it's not just about having a cool car. Um, you got to do something with it. And mm -hmm. so the fact that he continues to innovate, continues to change it, came out with the truck. I don't know how that's all going to play out when it's all said and done. <laughs> yeah, but, I suspect he's never actually used a pickup truck the way that thing was built. <laughs> <laughs> but he made it ugly, and everybody hated it, which means everybody was talking about it, which means people wanted it. And so, again, he optimized that. It was not enough to just have a thing. He, he literally is, is – playing a game of chess and the rest of the world's playing checkers for the most part, like I said. Seems so like you're, you're, you have to look at that 1% and say, why are they the 1%? They're the optimizers. They're the people who don't quit. They don't just settle. They don't just take normal and say, okay, I've, I've created a truck. I've created a car. I've created a spacecraft. I mean, they're literally landing it on an island and reusing well, it. 
Yeah, and, you're you're you know. you're almost saying like um, the the popular culture wisdom is to learn to be satisfied with your life, but the one percent of the people who reject that and they say, "I'm never satisfied. There's always something I can do differently or better." Yeah. Maybe satisfaction yeah. is not yeah. as important as we yeah. think it is. Well, satisfaction and happiness is a temporary thing, really. Um, you know, you 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 get something and you're happy with it for a while, and then you're just okay with it, and then you don't like it anymore. Um, so you have to find something better so that you can be happy again. And uh, and all, but uh, um, going back to Alan, going back a couple steps uh, to what you said, uh, I think you're. I think you're limiting Elon Musk in a way that he's not actually limited because he's not playing chess. He's kind of playing chess, but he's playing a chess that you can take back a move when it doesn't work. And he can pivot and he can go, okay, this is ugly. And even though people really, uh, really want, seem to want it, it's ugly and not everybody's going to want it. So I can pivot a little bit, take that move back just a hair and change and go, okay, now more people will like this. Um, and you can do that with uh, with Twitter and SpaceX and Tesla and all that uh, kind of stuff that, you know, if it doesn't quite work, I can take the move back. Right. Well, that's uh, optimization. That's yeah, exactly what yeah. optimization. Optimization doesn't always mean doing more or something different. Right, right. It could literally be just saying, okay, we were closer to optimum before. Let's mm -hmm. ratchet this down a little bit. Right. And so you have that. But, you know, one of the interesting things is, I have gone counterculture to a lot of that because I was a corporate executive at age 39, supervising all these people, working in, you know, Fortune 500 companies, traveling all over the world, doing that thing, making the money, and I was freaking miserable. Yeah. And I don't know if I can curse a little bit on this show. Sure, you can yes curse or no? a little okay. bit. Okay. Anyway. Just a little bit. Anyway. <laughs> I, okay, I refer to myself as the fat bastard because everything that I identified with as a child, as a kid growing up, being an athlete and all those things, all that was gone. I had given that away to be this successful corporate guy, mm -hmm. and I was miserable. And I wanted to change, and it took me a long time, but what I found was that I had to let go of certain battles. And one of the battles I let go of was trying to push myself up the corporate ladder, trying to be the best at that. Um, I was in what I would call the 1% of that for a long time. And that was, you know, it, 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 financially it was great. Uh, but there was just a point where I said, okay, no, this is not serving me in the long run for the life I want to live. So maybe I pulled a chicky black by selling all of my stuff and moving down to a Caribbean island where my cost of living is a fraction of what it was in the United States. Um, but that's what I did. And so if you would ask someone, am, you know, am I an optimizer? Am I in the top 1%? I would say, what's your measuring stick? Because What problem are you optimizing? Right. And I'm optimizing, like you had said earlier, Bill, is I'm optimizing my situation. I'm optimizing my life and saying, okay, I'm happy here. I'm right where I want to be. If I have to get on a boat or a plane to leave this island, I don't want to. 
<laughs> I, I begrudgingly do it from time to time because I have, you know, family obligations and uh, I had to go get a, a medical thing done not long ago. And so I'll do it, but I, I don't like doing it. I want to stay on this island. I want to do what I'm doing. I love what I do and I want to keep doing it. Yeah. And is what you're doing on the island, that's your, um, your business now, your, uh, your health after 40, um, yeah, advising it's, it's business that yeah. you do? It's both. Yeah, I, I'm an online coach uh, for people over 40 in the health and fitness field. And my wife and I run a bed and breakfast. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah. But that's so a nice we, place. We, yeah, yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's a little six-bedroom uh, Caribbean-style house um, with each one has their own shower and bath, and there's a full kitchen for the guests. And so it's a really cool thing. And we have guests coming through every every day, some new people coming in, old, other people going out. And so it's just an opportunity to connect with people all around the world, help them have a good time in focus by advising them on, you know, best places to eat, best activities to do, and make sure they have a good, relaxing vacation. Um, and so that's part of it is that gift of taking care of people in a place where they might be a little bit sensitive because this isn't their home country. And some of our guests have never been outside the United States, and this is their first foray into the international space. And it's kind of off the beaten path, so they're maybe a little bit, you know, intimidated. And they that's get adorable. Here. Yeah. And then you're just taking care of them. It's like, here's where you are. They're like, okay, I want to go here. How do I do it? I'm like, okay, you can walk down here. You're going to walk past this building, past that park. And then there's the dock. And it should cost you six bucks, eight bucks to get the water taxi to take you where you want to go. Um, and so those are, those are joys. I mean, you know, those are gifts. And when I have a, a client that's lost a lot of weight, that's a gift to me. I, I love that part of my job, part of my life. And now here, also with the clients and guests that are staying at our hotel, they're having a wonderful breakfast, they're having a wonderful experience, um, and they're leaving Bocas having really good memories. And Mr. Meisner, can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, you can call me Alan. I'm... Alan, uh, <laughs> the, um, on your, your bio, on your website, you said that you went through a, a, there was a crisis period, uh, and then you had a sort of turnaround that was fairly acute or sudden. Was that uh, what you're talking about when you left the corporate world and went down there? Well, no, it's it's a it's a structure. It was a, a step, step, step. So uh, I, I wouldn't say it was dramatic, fast. Um, it was it was like they like someone will sit there and say it's an overnight success. Okay, so it was an overnight weight loss dream. Uh, but I went through eight years of failure um, from that moment. You know, I was sitting on a beach in Port of Art, uh, like I said, successful, loving my life. It was wonderful. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, I was making tons of money and I hated myself, um, but. I was sitting on that beach and the day before I'd been trying to play sand volleyball, something I did very well when I was younger and I couldn't make it through a whole game. I had to sub out and I was miserable about that. And so I was like, what happened to me? Where, at, where am I in this? You know, and I, you know, and at this time I, you're still in the corporate field. Yeah. 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 And so then I made the decision and I say a decision, uh, but eight years later, I wasn't any better off. In fact, I probably was in worse shape. And it was trial and error, trial this, fail that, gain, lose, lose 20 pounds, gain 30, lose 20 pounds, gain it back, you know, that back and forth thing. And I was in a hotel 
I woke up, I was hungover, and I sat there and said, okay, why? Why, why is this one part of my life so difficult when... Well, I can tell you why you were hungover. Yeah, that, I knew why I was hungover. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I, could, I, I didn't know how many, but I, I could tell you why. They um, never do. <laughs> <laughs> they had two, the first one and the last one. The rest <laughs> yeah. is a little fuzzy. Yes. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing was this, is I realized that the reason I had been successful at other things that I had done was because I committed to doing them. There was no doubt that I was going to do it. It was, it was a commitment. And that's the difference, the decision versus the commitment. And so people decide, well, I want to lose a little bit of weight or I want to do this. And there's no emotion behind that. It's just like, okay, what does that weight mean to you? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be smaller. I'll fit in my clothes. And I'll look better. So what? <laughs> and then it was, uh, I'm losing myself. I really am losing who I am. And I'm watching things happen around me. I'm becoming a spectator in my own life because I don't have the capacity to participate in the things that matter. And that's when that commitment hit me. And I'm like, I have to commit to this. This has to be an absolute. This has to have to put the same thing into this that I did when I was in the military. I have to put the same thing I did in this that I did when I played football. Uh, when I was passing or taking this, studying for the CPA exam, it was just this commitment. You have to commit. And then once you make that commitment, it becomes easy. Motivation is just automatic because at that point, you're in love with yourself. You know why you're doing this. You care about it so desperately that you just make it happen. And that's what I did. And so then from there, it was dramatic. 11 months, I lost 66 pounds of fat. Um, wow. I gained 11 pounds of muscle. I went from fat bastard to completing a tough mutter with my CrossFit level one daughter who was 20 years old, 25 years younger than me. <laughs> and um, we did that race. And, you know, my core going into it, I did not want to slow her down. And I, I wanted to be a participant in her life. And that's what she was into. And so we did that race. And, and here's the payoff. The payoff was crossing that finish line, holding her hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. About nobody can, no, yeah, yeah. Nobody can take that away from me. Running a Tough Mudder is a 13-mile race with obstacle courses. Running that with my adult daughter and finishing with her and not holding her back and being a support for her, you know, on this whole thing and finishing holding her hands. And what would you say? Magic. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say was the the key element of finding the commitment? Would it be something like you were finally prepared to sacrifice the things that you had to sacrifice to make it happen? What eventually what I define that commitment? Yeah, the, the the basic the commitment was I knew it was time. I knew it was time, and I knew so I was going to commit a lot of time to training, and I was going to have to commit. Uh, effort to knowing what to do because I was still traveling like 90% of the time. And so people will use that as an excuse. Oh, well, I, I, I can't work out because I'm on the road all the time. And when you throw out a term like 90%, just to put it in context, because the math seems kind of hard for a lot of people, that means I was at my house sleeping in my own bed about three nights a month. Okay. So I couldn't hire a trainer. You know, because at that point, trainers were in the gym and they're like, okay, I'll meet you on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at six o'clock. See you. At the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do that. So I was like, well, what do I have to do? And so I started taking courses and I got certified as a personal trainer. Uh, then I'm like, okay, well, my movement is crap. And so I, I went into corrective exercise. I did behavior management. I did fitness nutrition. Uh, I did. So you got, you got certified as a personal trainer before you were fit to train yourself. 
Yes. I became that my is, own coach. That is dedication. <laughs> That's dedication. That's time and effort and everything. And so then I started doing it and I made the change. Um, but then as I, and I went ahead and launched the podcast and, and all that, but at some point I realized, okay, uh, while I am physically fit and I do a lot of really good things for my health, uh, there's still some problems and stress management was maybe the biggest one. And so when I got laid off uh, from my job in December of 2017, I just told my wife, I'm like, you know, I'm not really making any money doing this podcast or this personal training thing, but I'm going to. That's, that's going to be the main way I pay our bills. And, and committed to that. <laughs> did you, uh, uh, you said that because you, you found that you really enjoyed, you had a passion for it, uh, or yeah, because yeah. there's a, a psych, you know, some psychologists would say that we have a, a longing to be useful to our community, to feel like we're contributing. Uh, did this give you that sense more than your corporate life did? It, it did. And, and there's, there's one other side I throw out in the story and this would, this will make it all make all the sense in the world. I was an auditor. Okay. I was an internal auditor in a corporation. And so if you've ever worked for a corporation, you know, there's these guys that go around and make sure everybody does everything the way they're supposed to. They, they dot the I's, cross the T's, they check everything off. If you're not doing what you're supposed to do, they have to write this report and tell you, tell everybody how you didn't do your job right. And, and then help so you, you figure were the out how guy. you, I, every, every, <laughs> I was the, I was voted the most hated person in the company. 10 years, almost 10 years in a row. There was one year that this other compliance guy got it. And that's only because they made him do an enterprise risk assessment. And if you've ever gone through one of those, you'll understand why he won most hated for that year, but pretty much the whole other time for 10 years that I was working at that company in particular, because my boss had no problem telling me, you know, we, we did a little survey mm -hmm. and you're the most hated person in the entire company. Um, and that was my day-to-day -day job was that confrontation. So you can imagine how stressful that is where you're literally sometimes having to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a, a CEO or someone like that in a company. It's not fun. Uh, so there was no fun in my other job. Whereas when I'm having a conversation with a client and she's over 50 and didn't believe she could lose any weight and she's lost 41 pounds in six months, that's yeah. a pretty cool moment, you know, that, you know, yeah. when you know, when you, uh, or or client that's now they're, they're, they're getting off of their blood pressure medication. Their doctor's like, we're going to cut back on your blood pressure medication. And they know within a couple months, they're probably not even going to be taking any medications. So you're saying there's nothing that quite compares to making somebody else better, stronger, <laughs> elevating them, helping them yeah. grow. I can't think of anything that would be better than that. I mean, we, we do it for our family all the time. You think about it, you know, you have your kids, you, you do everything to protect them and take care of them. Sometimes they don't like it, but you still do it. Uh, you do that for your spouse. You do that for your parents. Uh, that inherent nature of caring is there. Um, and then, you know, obviously we have our spheres of control and maybe we just do it a little less the further we get out, but it still feels good. It still feels good to help someone, to hold the door open for them. You know, it, it just feels good. Like like your, your guy barking at this side of the road deal. Uh, give him a dollar. You feel good about it. Right? We help someone. Mm-hmm.
Now, maybe you helped him buy some whiskey, but you still <laughs> help someone. Yeah, but it's, it's appropriate to take an <laughs> yeah. innocent approach to that. Absolutely. And, uh, and Alan, where can people find you if they want to get uh, help uh, getting fit? Well, you can go to 40plusfitness.com. That's my uh, personal training site. Uh, you can go yeah. to 40plusfitnesspodcast.com, and that's where you can find the podcast in the 580-some-odd episodes of that that are out there. Um, and then I wrote a book called The Wellness Roadmap, uh, which is a straightforward guide to health and fitness for people over 40. So you can find that anywhere that you buy books. I suspected you'd written a book. I couldn't find it, but uh, I, wasn't, I, I was busy on your website. Yeah, I, I did. I, when I when I got laid off, that was like I said. I told my wife I, I'm not going back, and uh, I thought, okay, how can I make myself more marketable? How can I help more people? Because uh, the podcast was growing, but I was like, I know I can reach more people if I just have different ways uh, of being out there. So I, yeah, I did write the book. Okay. So really, you didn't uh, you didn't let go of the corporate world. The corporate world let go of you. And that was the, 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 that moment when you, when you took the opportunity to, uh, to start fitness and, uh, I, I tried to let go. I yeah. tried to let go. I was in the, you know, if in corporate, you get up to the top and you're, you're in a high position and then it's, everybody's looking at the people that work for the company as numbers. I'm sorry, but they may say they love you and they care about you. But <laughs> in the end, if there's three people that have to go, it's usually not going to be them. They're not going to typically put their own name on the list. Well, I'd gone through a couple rounds of this, and the company I worked for wanted them gone by the end of the year. And so from a timing perspective, they would usually tell me right before Thanksgiving break that I had to let a certain number of people go. And then I would have to think over my Thanksgiving break who those people would be. And then I would have to, the first couple of weeks of December, travel around the world and tell people that they were no longer needed at the company. Right in and time that was for Christmas. My, yeah, just in time for Christmas. Yep. And that was, that was what I would do every December, you know, November, December. That was the end of every year. Uh, and then the whole conversation of cut your budget and do more, um, you know, all those things. And right. so they came around and there was the year before I got laid off. They basically, I went through the list and they said, we need you to cut three people. Now at this point I was down to 12. I'd gone from uh, 23 down to 12 over wow. the course of the previous three years. And they said, you got to cut three. And I'm like, well, that's a lot. And they're like, well, and I said, so I they said, there's certain things we do on demand. People ask us to do. I said, I'm going to be saying no to some of those people. So I just want you to know that I won't be able to do it. They're going to have to outsource that because I can't do it. I've got a job to do and I, I need as many, I need these people, but we'll get it done anyway. So I was sitting down on Thanksgiving break and I, I went to my wife uh, and I said, Hey, uh, I'm going to put my name on the list. Okay. And she said, what, what, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I think I'm just going to put my name on the list. I'll take a package. I'll go find another job and we'll be fine. And she's like, okay. So I called my boss. I said, okay, I've got the list. I says, this person, this person, and me. <laughs> he said, what? He said, oh, no, no, no. We, 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 can't, we can't be without you. We need you. They need their reprint. <laughs> so they made me, yeah, they made me basically take on, uh, take someone else out. And so I did it reluctantly. 
Well, a year later, they decided they didn't need me. So they completely outsourced the department and laid us all off. So you know, they didn't need me, need me. They needed me for a little while until they decided that they didn't need me. Um, but it's all numbers, you know, that basically someone can look at their financial filing for the end of the year and say there's fewer headcount than there was last year. Therefore, they're more cost effective than da 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 da. It's just it's math and it's not necessarily true, but yeah, it's not, yeah. but it, you know, it, it looks good. And I can tell yeah. them it's like, you know, you're going to spend more outsourcing this. You're just going to spend more because every time you go and ask them for something different, something new, an investigation or this, that, you're going to be hiring that out. You're going to spend more. He said, so their base bid is going to be lower than or at what I pay, what you pay me now. He said, but you're going to pay them more. And so I said, this is not, a, this is really just about headcount and how many people are in the financial statement. And that's all it is. It's, it's nothing more. So they could say they love you and they care about you. Uh, but as long as they get to keep taking their trips to the Virgin Islands over Christmas and do their thing, they don't. They don't. I'm sorry. Um, right. So it's just a world I didn't want to be in. I didn't like those people. I didn't like having to be like that because at the point I, I could sit there and tell you, well, the people I have working for me, she just bought a house, you know, because uh, we just gave her a, a, a promotion and we get, she just bought a house. And this guy's having problems with his kids and his teen kids and drugs. And, you know, this woman's got this problem. And so I know their personal stories. I know that's how I connected with my staff. And so now they're like, you got to get rid of three of them. So this is, this is like picking children to get rid of, you know, in, in my mind. And so that was extremely stressful and hard. And so from a optimizing perspective, it was, I don't, that's not optimized. That's not how I view living a fulfilled and happy life. I was adding value to a corporation and I was being paid for it well um but at the end it was it was not fulfilling because it just seemed like do the work things don't necessarily get any better fire a few people do the work <laughs> things don't necessarily get any better fire a few people and that's i just was done i said i'm done and so now uh when i get off a phone call with a client i know that i've helped them yeah I can feel good about what I do. Yeah, for sure. That, that does sound very rewarding. Um, you, you know, you know, what's funny. One time I worked at a place and they gave me my yearly review. And one Eat of the that microphone, man. Yep. Louder. They give me a, a review, right? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. They give me the yearly review. And one thing was said, it was good. For uh, oh, that customer service, and then the next thing they go, uh, now was bad is customer service. I'm like, so you're gonna give me a good customer service and it's bad that I give customers. And then <laughs> the guys would tell me the boss, we can't give you a good review because then you take our job, but you're good enough for our job. So they would give everybody a, a messed up review, so you couldn't take the boss's job. But then, what I figured out when I worked, because I grew up in the projects with a lot of criminals. The worst criminals I have ever worked with was people that worked in, they were the biggest liars. One time, uh, I worked at UCI and a lady told me, uh, she said, hey, just go do your job. I said, you shouldn't talk to me that way. She took me to the office, started telling me stuff. Hey, you're out of here. You're done and everything. 
So she couldn't fire me because we had a union. So when the union came, I said, hey, did you say that uh, I'm fired, I'm done here and all this? I said, you didn't say that uh, you're not here no more, you're no good and this and that? She said, no. But she had a plaque of her when she was in the Navy. I said, hey, take that down because you're here. You're not here. I go, because people have died in the war. My grandfather went to the war. And you're claiming that you're a good whatever soldier you were. And you're going to be a liar. Now, honestly, she just lied to my face. And at least when you're a criminal, somebody lies to your face, you punch them in the face. And then all of a sudden, the truth comes out. But you know what, guys? Uh, one question I wanted to ask. When you found like you had everything that you wanted in the were you happy? Because my thought is, oh, I own the house. Just to live there to die so I can always have something that I have to work with. Did you, did you guys have happiness when you were successful? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things of, like, you know, I remember when I first got my um, my first directorship at, at a company, a uh, big company, and I was I was – interviewing for it internally, but everybody hated everybody in my department and the people who were interviewing were the people we would be auditing. So it was kind of like, okay, the, the people who hate you most are gonna decide if they wanna promote you. And um, I remember I was waiting for a phone call uh, to get the answer and I was sitting out on my patio having dinner and drinking a glass of wine and the, um, the phone rang and I got up and ran and didn't realize that uh, we had left the, we'd closed the screen door. I literally ran right through that screen door to get to that phone. And when I learned, when I, learned I got the promotion, I, you know, I wasn't too happy about having to replace the screen door, but uh, I was, you but know, you those, those that moment, yeah, well, yeah. Cause that was, that, that was a pretty sweet little raise. Um, and so there's those moments where, yeah, I were like, I would do, I would do an audit or do some work and it would, it would really do something good. Or when, uh, like there was a company that would do, um, they would do surveys of how companies do business and they featured a white paper on my process, the way I developed and designed the process for what we did. And so they thought it was really interesting and unique and a great perspective. So they actually featured that in one of their white papers. So there, there were moments, um, of the happiness happen. is transient and it is not the it, same it, as satisfaction. Right, right. Now, what I can tell you is being here, I have a lot more of those moments. Being on this island, helping people here, I have a lot more of the moments of those moments. The clients that I help here, I have a lot more of those moments because it's not it's not about a promotion or, or being promoted, if you will, like, like having in a white paper and having my peers really like what I'm doing. This This is a different a different feeling because it's a much it's got a much more depth to it there's 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 more it has more i would say consequence if you will because someone's health and life to me is much more valuable than whether the procurement manager got three signatures on a piece of paper very good yeah, the, uh, I was just curious about one other thing real quick, sir. Uh, Alan, what did you do in the military? Infantry. <laughs> like legit infantry? Deployed yeah, overseas? 11, 11 Bravo. Uh, I didn't deploy. It was peacetime. Mm -hmm. um, 
but but basically trained, and then they they put me in a ranger unit. Eleven um, Bravo, so, good for you. Yeah, so it was it was pretty intense. I was I was one hundred first airborne, um, so I was I was mixed in there with the rangers, and uh, you know the the you train. You know they say you train the way you're going to perform. So we we were pretty rough with. Oh yeah, no, I I know what the <laughs> I know what those guys get up to in their training. That's uh that's legit, and Eleven Bravo is legit for sure. When uh, so, when were you with the hundred and first? I uh, I went in in '86 and got out in '88. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. So just before. Um, just before. We, yeah. Uh, we were in. Uh, we were in. Uh, in at Fort Campbell. Uh, uh, my father was with the 101st as a chaplain, um, starting in '89, I think. It was so. Uh, yeah, he got uh, he got Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Yeah, I was I was in back into college when that happened, and everybody's like, "Well, Alan, are you afraid they're going to call you up?" And I'm like, "Well, it is an eight year stint, you know. When you sign up for the army, uh, at least back then, you signed up for eight years. There was two years active for me as an infantry, and then six years inactive. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, "Are you really worried about they're going to get called up?" I'm like. No, 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 because what they need now is supply clerks and, you know, uh, people who are going to shuffle papers, people who work in payroll, things like that. How are they going to get the equipment there and maybe bring it back? Did you get in um, jumps while you were in the 101st training? I, I didn't, I didn't do jump school. I didn't do jump in the parachutes because uh, actually that training was at Benning. Um, I did air assault, so I oh, jumped out nice. of helicopters. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. After my own heart, very good. Yeah, I was, I was, I was with the rappel unit, so we we did a lot of rope work and rappels. That's awesome. Well done. <laughs> but, How about uh, a little bit know, about you, William? Yeah. Oh, um, like what? Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, uh, you're the. You know, anybody uh, can get on this show. Yep. Any- Anybody can get on this show. That's right. Well, you're the first uh, the first person to describe themselves as a Christian apologist. Now, that's interesting that that's what was interesting to you. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but uh, uh, I noticed you introduce your brother in Christ every time you do this show, but you don't yes. bring up your faith very much on the show. Not on this show. This show is supposed to be more about the guests, mm-hmm. and uh, and we do occasionally uh, talk about uh, about faith and and uh, Christianity. Um, actually, we have another show where we uh, where we express that quite a bit um, called YWO okay. Online, and uh, we do uh, we do two of those shows a week. Uh, I do them with my father, who, as I said, was a uh, was a chaplain. Uh, Navy, Marines, Army, and VA, and also a cruise ship chaplain, which, uh, nice. which I've always found interesting. But uh, um, but yeah, and uh, um, and so we get to talk about uh, about the Bible and Christianity in general, and uh, and faith and and all of those things there. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, there's there's not much, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to do. Uh, to do uh, the Christian thing on this particular show. Um, right, you're getting mostly professional stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, Will, um, what's the apology for? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's because I'm so <laughs> sorry. 
Um, yeah, uh, and I suppose that in every venue that has to be explained. It's not apologizing, as I'm sure both of you know. It's right. uh, apologia, uh, the Greek word for giving a defense. And this is not a vocation, it's an avocation. But um, mostly I work, I do what I do. But uh, if uh, people want to talk about that, I try to be ready for it. And mm. um, given given the resources that are currently available i would say we're probably in the golden age of christian apologetics right now um mm. as far as that goes um the you know gary habermas was back in the 70s when he released his doctoral thesis and since then you've got um you got people doing uh, lydia mcgrew's bayesian analysis you got john mcclatchy's maximal data arguments you've got um uh, William Lane Craig's uh, uh, philosophical arguments. Um, you've got the fine-tuning stuff that is off the charts now. Stephen Meyer's books um, on that, that, uh, you know, the, the fine-tuning argument has just gone bananas as far as everything they've learned about the, um, the, the cosmological um, constants that are out there, uh, and just how tuned they have to be, how tuned the, um, our planet has to be, um, as far as not just its size and its distance from the sun and what kind of sun and what size of sun, um, but the presence of a gas giant, the presence of an, a very unusual moon, um, that, you know, our moon is not a, a typical satellite. It seems to be a break off that's huge compared to its host planet and getting farther away, not closer, um, that all of these were essential for, uh, for the instigation of life on earth. And then you've got, um, increasing, increasing, increasing problems with uh, natural selection. Um, as the, the fossil record, uh, becomes more and more complete, it's converging towards, uh, punctuated stability rather than a gradual, um, increase in order. You've got the mathematical problems um, with uh, with life itself, the uh, the probabilistic resources for uh, a, a natural selection process just not not existing. The more we learn about uh, genetic code, um, the uh, the the problem of information theory, which is kind of my background as a computer science guy, um, the the idea that everything in life is information and there are certain rules for how information works how it increases uh, in a system uh, and there's there's no mechanism for that naturally so uh, all of that together uh, and all the people who are putting that out in academic work and then work for the public like i said stephen meyer uh, jonathan mcclatchy lydia mcgrew um, William Lane Craig, and then uh, folks like Lee Strobel, uh, who are writing the, the popular level books. Right. Um, and then the YouTubers that are picking it up now, uh, the David Woods, the, uh, the Mike Jones, Inspiring Philosophy, the, the um, Mike Winger um, doing his work on YouTube, half a million, three quarters of a million subscribers. Uh, and their work is incredibly well-informed. It's, it's just very, very potent. And it's getting to the point where you could be extremely well armed to say this is not just, you know, if a, a religion is an ordered theory about the uh, origin and nature of the universe from which a person can derive information about how to live, um, you have theories that have no 
ba basis, no backing, um, various pantheons, Shintoism, Hinduism, um, atheism. And then you've got this one outlier uh, that makes very specific historical and philosophical claims. And we just keep learning more and more and more that backs it up. Um, oh yeah, and the archeology span at this point is bananas. Um, you know, they just found a, a curse, a lead curse tablet that big uh, in a trash pile in, <laughs> in Jerusalem that uh, confirms Old Testament uh, details that historians for a century have considered had to be fabricated, had to be redacted. Um, you know, the documentary hypothesis of the Old Testament, uh, that it was all constructed from various uh, proto-religions, and then they find a, a curse tablet from the, uh, you know, Middle Bronze Age too that says, nope, they were, they were using this terminology in the exact place where the Old Testament says, in the exact way that the Old Testament says, at the time that the Old Testament says, and dates it all back there. And those little details keep piling up. So this is the age to uh, to make an argument for Christianity. And um, it's uh, it's very, very impressive, the work that's coming out now. So uh, it's, not, it's not what I do. It's not what I write. It's not um, my job, but it is... There's so much information right now that it's always fun to get into those those yeah. arguments because people are not ready for just how much there is. Right. For sure. Yeah, I'm definitely not getting into that argument because I'm not as well read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me neither. Um, but uh, yeah, your uh, your brief bio also said you were a uh, Navy pilot. And uh, uh, yes, sir. So I. Um, I was a, an H-60 pilot, so that's why the, the helicopter jumpers are near and dear to my heart. I was, right. um, did some, some roping and some, some insert extract Marines and uh, uh, some good stuff. Like, like you, it's all training, just years and years of training and, uh, and missed the action. But, boy, that training is fun. You know, fast roping guys <laughs> on, on goggles is a blast. Um, did a stint as a fixed-wing instructor. So, um, you know, if you, okay. uh, Mr. Meisner, if you get interested, you know check me out. We'll, we'll get you up <laughs> back in the air. Um, did a brief stint, uh, directing some airstrikes in East Africa, also a blast, um, hunting the most dangerous game from behind a desk. Um, but, uh, but more importantly, keeping, you know, being ready to protect our own guys that are maneuvering around out there and, and solve that problem. Um, yeah, that was, that's kind of the, the picture of my military service, nothing too dangerous, um, nothing too, too crazy, but, Good. I, I enjoyed it and, and learned a lot, took a lot of skill set from it, experiences. Well, I, I wouldn't say not not dangerous. So we were we were in an, we had an incident. Um, we were doing night exercises and um, they were trading off the, the helicopters for us. So we went out and did our session and then we went back out and uh, someone from our headquarters came in that night, uh, that next morning and said, oh, you guys are still all alive. And we're like, yeah, what happened? It turned out two of the helicopters collided, killed 19 soldiers. In oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so stuff so, happens. And But the, the point being is that the news, all the news said was they just listed our company, uh, you know, the battalion. They, they didn't mm -hmm. tell anybody which battalion until they were able to talk to the families. The families, yeah. And, yeah, and so he, this guy didn't know when he was driving out there whether he would find us out there or, or not yeah. because he didn't even know. Uh, that it was a different company. So uh, they've since codified a lot of the um, 
stuff like operational risk management. They actually took a lot of that from civilian aviation, imported it to military aviation. And, uh, and nowadays, you know, you memorize this stuff, you talk about it, you get training on it. And I always took ORM pretty seriously. So I would say when we did our fast roping exercises, it was not terribly dangerous, not because it has been inherently <laughs> dangerous, but because we, we did a little homework. I didn't care to have an experience like that. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, it was just kind of, it made you think, made you think. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, like, like, uh, like that I did a, I did, did a deployment over in Bahrain, uh, and we were doing all that stuff. We were going out and doing cast exercises. Um, we were going fast roping guys doing insert extracts with brownouts, uh, up in Kuwait and, uh, did it all safely, had a great time, um, rotated out and the next rotation on that deployment rolled a helicopter. So it's all about how you manage it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, your website, William, uh, wccollier.com, or you can just go on Amazon and, uh, Google the book, which is the outsiders, correct? Yep. Yeah. If you, if you uh, look for Outsiders Collier on uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever else, uh, you'll find it. Uh, but yeah, that's just something I, I kind of do for fun when I'm not when I in in and around the time when I'm living in the world is uh, it's just <laughs> write fun stories. And they said I should put this one out, so I did. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm going to take a second to uh, to insert uh, my uh, my little commercial. Are you tired of being bogged down by tedious paperwork and repetitive tasks? AutomateU.co can give you the edge you need to succeed and stay ahead of the competition. With our innovative automation solutions, you can save time, reduce costs, increase efficiency, and grow sales across your entire business. Revolutionize your business with AutomateU's innovative automation solutions. Stay ahead of the competition and boost your bottom line with streamlined processes, increased efficiency, and enhanced sales growth. Try AutomateU.co today and start achieving your business goals faster than ever before. Get your 30-day free trial now at AutomateU.co. And we're back. Uh <laughs> nice. Yeah. You know, it works when you're able to, uh, to edit and post. Yeah, it's the only thing I do is I, I add in my commercial and I add the ending credits. And uh, and that's it. Everything else goes out on the air. So, <laughs> including Fat Bastard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have to ask anyway, you know, I can't yeah, just yeah. throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you got to start working with bleeps, you know, and no. Nobody yeah. wants that. No, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, nobody. Yeah, nobody wants that. Yeah, when I was on the radio, we had the three-second dump button, but uh, um, we never, uh, we never actually had to use that. So, but uh, it was always a funny threat to me because I'd always say crazy stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> I got three seconds to fix you. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, um, let's see. So what else uh, is there? Um, let's see. We've uh, we've talked about Alan's 40plusfitness.com and 40plusfitnesspodcast.com. And then we've got Williams WCCollier.com, uh, which uh, I'm pretty all sure those that's links. Right. WC, that's what you wrote. 
Let's oh, see good. here if it if it clicks through. It's like it's like your own phone number. You don't you don't call yourself very often. Let's see if it comes up. Let's see here. Fan, oh, it it moves to fantasyvreality.com. That's and just fine. The that's, yep. Yep, that's where it's all piled up. So that's good. Redirect. Yeah, I have a redirect. I have a couple of redirects. I, I got to get my uh, my websites all in order. But uh, very cool. I, I like this. This is very nice. I like okay. the uh, yeah, I like I've, the covers. Yeah, very uh, they, very colorful. Uh, I pretty much had to do everything myself because this is uh, I'm a I'm a nobody as far as publishing goes, and um, <laughs> so it's just it's just a passion project. So I tried yeah. to tried to do right by the by the story and uh, and put something nice together for it and um, nice. and get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Back to real life, and uh, what's what's uh, what's real life for you these days? Uh, hmm, these days, um, right now, I'm an, uh, a police officer. Uh, okay, it's, uh, it was one of those things that sort of out there that I hadn't experienced yet, and it's kind of everybody's always talking about it, and it's very unpopular with a certain segment. So I figured, well, if a lot of people don't like it, I should go do it. Sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> so, You'd have made a great uh, auditor. You'd have made a great auditor. <laughs> yeah, probably would have. Um, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing airstrikes. That was super fun. And all my JTACs had a good time and then um, got out and did uh, got out in time to just kind of not participate in the COVID stuff uh, and then um, got a corporate job. So I, uh, I got the corporate world for just a moment um, <laughs> with uh, with Raytheon over in uh, in UAE. Okay. Um, and that was like, what year was that? 20, this is 23. That was 21, June of 21. I got over there, July of 21. And then, uh, we were mentoring, mentoring Afghan air force pilots in their training pipeline. Mm. Um, okay. and it was going to be a nice cushy two year, uh, corporate gig, maybe an entree into the, uh, into Raytheon and then <laughs> Afghanistan collapsed. We pulled out and Afghanistan fell over flat and we had to get all those pilots refugeed somewhere because the Taliban had a fatwa on them. And, uh, and that was that. That was the uh, full extent of my, my corporate life was four months in, in UAE and then the whole program came crashing down. So hmm. came back home and thought, what was the other adventure that I hadn't had yet? Oh yeah, police. So popped into the academy, uh, takes six months, easy as pie. You know, you study a little bit, you exercise a little bit. Uh, and they make you a police officer, and then you do another six months of training uh, with your department. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been very interesting so far. Lots of crazy people. My uh, my <laughs> grandfather was a uh, cop here in uh, Santa Ana back mm -hmm. in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, well, there's the a lot of is... there's a lot of bad things that go that are going on around uh, around the policing world. That's for sure. But uh, definitely a lot of respect for the good ones who uh, who are out there doing their job. Right. Yeah, and the, and most of them are, especially in the smaller towns, yeah. which is uh, where I kind of position myself. Um, and the problem set is very different than it used to be. It used to be, it's like, okay, you got your your big mafia types, gangs, mm -hmm. and um, and street criminals, and nowadays it's it's cartel related stuff. You got your petty crime, you got your cartel related stuff, and then you've got social disorder in the big cities uh, because of those so, so social norms we were talking about that turned out to be not at all as fundamental as everybody thought they were. Uh, and 
drug use. Everybody's on marijuana and everybody's convinced that it's a, a drug with no dangers and everybody's ignoring the studies that show that it builds paranoia pathways in the brain. And so if you are a child or a, a still with a developing brain, and that's still under 26. So you start on this stuff when you're less than 26 years old, you start on it and you have any kind of predisposition to uh, paranoia disorder. Next thing you know, you're just hearing people screaming and fighting around you that aren't even there. So the, these cities that have legalized marijuana or where marijuana is de facto illegal, huge, huge explosions in schizophrenia, psychosis, um, delusions, hallucinations, violent behavior, um, and, and meth use because methamphetamines are marijuana plus. So that <laughs> is the problem set these days for the cops. It's like every week you're going to get a call out to somebody who thinks he's Jesus or that um, he's being attacked by demons or that there's an assault going on right around the corner if you would just go look. Um, and it, they end up being a danger, um, to themselves or just having their lives destroyed all because of this perfectly safe drug. So well, well, one, one thing we read, world. I have a question for you. One, one of the things we read a lot is, is how much fentanyl is stopped at the border. But I, I always think that if you if you see something it's probably just the tip of the iceberg, um, how much of that stuff is actually getting into the communities? It depends on the community. So um, where I am, small town, um, Texas, uh, it's a town called Seguin, just east of San Antonio. And um, so we're on I-10, which is a shipping corridor, but most of the big drugs go past us on, on the interstate. They go up to Dallas and then uh, from Mexico, they go up to Dallas, they get redistributed. And then the actual use in Seguin is stuff that's redistributed coming back down from Dallas. Uh, or from Austin. And um, so in uh, in Seguin, I've been there six months and I haven't had a single fentanyl encounter. We've found uh, lots of marijuana, uh, plenty of meth, um, the uh, the occasional bit of heroin or, or some something else like that. Um, I have never seen a positive test for fentanyl. Go okay. 20 miles west into San Antonio, it's going to be a different story. And and the thing about that fentanyl is um, you may not know if you've got it. Um, if a guy's got pills, um, there are some fentanyl field tests, but uh, until we send it into a lab, it could be mixed in with something else. They're, they're cutting it in with other stuff and repressing the pills. So it is hard to tell. So everybody's got, these days, everybody's got fentanyl protection kits. So every um, officer is carrying like five mil um, gloves and uh, masks and uh, face masks and, and glasses. So if we get unidentified pills or powder, then, you know, everybody masks up, gloves up before they start to do field tests on it. Um, I, nothing has popped uh, since I've been around. I know they've got a couple, but with the, the national stats being what they are, yeah, they're, you're exactly right. Anytime they're talking about how much they're catching at the border, that's always a very small percentage of what's coming across. And, um, and that is, that is basically a Chinese industry. So China manufactures fentanyl and they ship it to the cartels in, in Mexico, um, for the American illicit consumer. And that's, that's huge, huge business in China. So yeah, they're manufacturing that stuff by, by the gigaton, uh, and getting we're, it into the country. We're getting a lot of it out here with, uh, uh with, 
many deaths, and uh, it's just mm-hmm. it's just amazing how little it takes um, to uh, to kill somebody. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my uh, my my dear friend and uh, and Rudy's wife uh, who passed away back in 2019. Um, at the end of her uh, battle battle of cancer, um, she was on fentanyl patches. Mm-hmm. And I was the one helping her use these things. So I had to glove up and uh, and all that stuff because you can't get that stuff on you for anything. Yeah, the dose, uh, the med- medicinal yeah. dose is, is a handful of micrograms for, for a human being. Yeah. Not, not like your 500 milligram tablet you're talking about. Right. Um, you know. I, I, uh, can I ask you a question, sir? Yeah. Which one? Uh, the officer. William. William. Have you ever read The Black Hand? Have you ever read The Black Hand? No, not familiar with hey, that one. That's a, a book about the mafia, and one guy um, actually leaves, and it was phrases because I seen that dude, and when he tells him the time, is the time that I saw him and I lived in the project. So what happened was I was reading because they were telling people, uh, don't read that book because they're going to kill you. So my friend was reading the book at, uh, at work at the hospital. I said, hey, bro, whatever you do, keep that book low because they're telling they're going to kill people. <laughs> he even came out of the news. So what it was was this guy, Renee, and he ended up telling on everybody. And then because I lived in the Hazard Project, so when they were talking about that, I said, hey, I know this guy. I know so they use that as um, a teaching method and uh, the police. Thing. And there's a thing, what do you call Bill when you go to school for uh, criminal criminal justice? Criminal justice? I think it's criminal justice. Criminology right? or yeah, well, what, criminal girl, justice. A girl I knew that lived upstairs went to criminal criminal court. Said, hey, Rudy, I saw you on the video. I said, what? So it's funny because they, <laughs> cause we came on an American me, so people got shot after the movie. A few yeah. And even after the movie, I was coming home and I got shot in the shoulder. <laughs> but what it was was, yeah, they were putting that as like a guideline to start understanding uh, different things. But you know what was funny? When Colors came out, they said, they, the cops would say, hey, you owe me one. So it was dumb. Every time like a movie came out, they would use that cliche from that to act like you're getting put into a situation that you owe somebody. So it was funny. Like, ah. So we would laugh. But uh, but yeah, it's um, as far as that guy that goes to jail for because uh, he gets his stuff. See, there's a lot of people that go to jail that are somebody, but when they're out here, they're nobody. So a lot of these guys go back just to be somebody because they are somebody in jail. And mm-hmm. actually, when you come out here, you're really nothing. You're just another mostly homeless guy doing drugs and. So you, you're nothing. So when you're in prison, some of these guys have like, hey, you know what? Awesome. He's a good, good guy or he's this or we can depend on this. So some people do do that because I knew a lot of people that went to prison almost all their life. Like I would see a dude for like a, it's out of prison. I might even see him for maybe a month and he's gone again. Ten years later, I see him again. What's up? See him for a month and he's gone again. So, but yeah, there's a book called The Black Hand and a lot of the stuff that yeah, I lived through it. I was like, "What? I know this guy." So they use it as a training tool. Might be interesting to read um, these uh, 
organized crime is always shifting right now. It's definitely the Mexican mafia stuff. So, um, see if I can find the, the, the equivalent book for that. Um, and people keep telling me I need to see colors. I haven't seen that yet. And I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a movie buff, but, uh, yeah, don't generally watch a lot of cop movies. So see, I'll track the, it down. And on the movie colors, the Crips and the Blitz don't get along. We already know that. So then something happens and all of a sudden the guy says, the white guy that's supposed to be in the Mexican fuck the Crips. So what it was was honestly that this, that movie was something just to start trouble. We already knew the Crips and Bloods didn't get along. So why does a Mexican guy have to say fuck them? And so what happens is it turns out in a circle, except Mexicans are at the theater or black people. So that's what started, starts problems. Because even, even when the Warriors came out, people were fighting and stuff. And I thought that was a good movie. I thought it was like, <laughs> you know, if I'm dressed up in a costume like a baseball player, hey, beat me up because I shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, they say there they used to be some of that in in Seguin, and all they all kind of beat each other up and ended up really running each other out of town. And so there's not a whole lot of that activity in the, in our yeah. particular town anymore. More in San Antonio and and elsewhere, but now it's it's mostly the drugs and um, I, I, the petty criminals like and old retired gangsters. There's another movie. It's funny because when I was a kid, it's called Over the Edge. Her Bill. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah, funny yeah. because I watched the movie and white kids were going crazy tearing up the town like in writing. I go, what do white kids have that are bad? It was funny because I, I didn't think white kids were a problem when I was a kid growing up. I thought it was just us Mexicans because we did whatever. We ice cream or whatever. So when I saw the movie Over the Edge, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know why people Yes, it was funny. It was cool. Yeah, Over the Edge is a good movie, too. Good enough. I, I, I like bad movies. So. <laughs> um, my my favorite uh, movies tend to be uh, tend to be produced by uh, Ed Wood and, uh, um, and his ilk. Um. Yeah, there's only so much time in life. Not enough time for bad movies. Oh, bad movies are awesome because they're exactly what they claim to be. A good movie can't be perfect. It'll always have something wrong with it. But a hmm. bad movie is always awful. Well, that is a <laughs> philosophy. Telling the truth. Yes, it is. That is, that is a philosophy. <laughs> and can I ask a question? What is an apologetic question? Because I think it's not apologetic like apologizing. It's uh, yeah. He said, I, "I think you were out of the room when he uh, when he mentioned it. it." Comes from the Greek word apologia, which means uh, giving a defense. Because so I'm, it's defending Christianity. I'm kind of like an angry Christian because I get mad when people <laughs> don't want to hear the word of God. And sometimes, well, one time a guy was Catholic and I said, "Hey, you're all wrong." Because and he was a gangster. He got up and started walking away. I said, "Hey, bro." Why are you letting the devil push you away? Why not just listen? And the reason is because they got purgatory. And what, honestly, of something Jesus paid the rent for the rest of the life. Nobody. So that's what I meant by Jesus. So there's no purgatory. There's no Mary. There's no anything. And you know, I got a cross on my face. I got a tattoo of a cross. And I tell people the reason I got a Peter denied Jesus. 
Oh, you see me getting beat up? A guy with a cross on his face, and I'm yelling, Mama, it's your boy. Just joking, because. <laughs> Okay, so uh, yeah, uh, a couple callbacks there. Uh, <laughs> Rudy's finally awake, um, but uh, um, but yeah, um, no, it's been. Oh, I moved. Sorry. Um, sorry, the table I have is breaking, and every time I move, it shakes. So. <laughs> Oh, that's the thing I haven't replaced yet. I replaced the camera and the lights and uh, and got the new microphone. And, uh, well, I've had that for a while. But, uh, um, but yeah, now i got to replace the table. So. And then get a microphone for your co-host. And you can get yeah. a separate microphone for my co-host. Yeah. yeah. Well, when we get to the new place, uh, we'll have all sorts of uh, all sorts of great stuff. So... I'd originally, actually, originally, it's funny, uh, originally I had planned to have this show be an in-person uh, event um, and uh, and have people over. I'd set up the living room as a studio and we'd sit and we'd, uh, and we'd all chat together and uh, and all that. And then, uh, and then COVID happened. And uh, so uh, I had to find a way to get guests and it opened up uh, to people around the world. No, no offense, Bill. Uh, if you had invited me, um, I wouldn't have been able to fly there to see right. you. Yeah, but now, exactly Joe Rogan. That. Joe Rogan invites me. I'm I'm on an airplane, Betty. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not. I'm not Joe yet. That's for sure. You're not Joe yet. None of no, us are not Joe yet. yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, most <laughs> views I've ever had on a YouTube video is uh, about twenty thousand. So. Twenty thousand views is pretty that's good. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not bad. I have one the other day that hit ten thousand, um, but uh, um, but yeah, so climbing, uh, climbing uh, tooth and nail, um, you know, up there. But uh, um, yeah, I gotta I gotta do some more serious market on the marketing and stuff. I've actually got a my day business, my day job um, helps people market their businesses uh, through uh, AI supported automated features. For uh, for business services, and now that I have that, I need to use it. Uh, <laughs> so, like, uh, yeah, I'm putting all that stuff together. So, uh, so hopefully, the show will be uh, will be more widely uh, accepted and uh, and put and and watched uh, by then. But uh, but yeah, I've had uh, I've because I do it all online now. Uh, um, I've had guests as far away as Israel, um, Israel, England, Finland. Um, uh, Costa Rica, um, yeah, just all over the place, and uh, so it's uh, it's really interesting. Now, Panama, <laughs> Panama, <laughs> very nice. Yep. So yeah, so nobody needs to fly and 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 come into the studio. It's all good, and uh, the sir, I'm liking this service, Riverside. I've only had problems with it twice. And once was because of the guests' uh, poor internet connection. Um, but uh, um, but yeah. Um, although uh, Alan, I can see that you're only eighty percent uploaded, so uh, so you're going to have to leave your computer on. Um, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I've, I've, I've actually I've actually done a couple now on Riverside, and um, 
Yeah, I know. I know. Just what, uh, what them to the islands. Well, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I am, I'm on an island uh, yeah. in the Caribbean mm-hmm. off the coast of Panama. And it is what it is uh, you know, our internet works pretty good from a download perspective. The speeds are mm-hmm. reasonable. It's the upload speeds that are really, really tapped down uh, that can cause some grief. I use, I use zoom for my podcast um, oh, okay. and it works, it works reasonably well, but there are even yeah. those times where it just sort of blips off and, you know, there was a risk I was going to have to call you uh, this morning because uh, they were shutting off power to part of the island. Oh, wow. To do some work. And sometimes they'll tell us, okay, it's this part of the island and not this part. And then it turns out to be the whole island. Um, <laughs> so there, you know, there's always that risk that uh, we're yeah. not going to be connected, not have electricity, run out of water, you know, those types of things. Third world, third world country problems. Um, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. I, I visited the, uh, the Philippines uh, years ago and like, that's like 15, 20 years ago now. Um, but uh, um, this, uh, this place we went to uh, Boracay, um, had, uh, um, every night it would start lightly raining, but it would be a warm rain and the electricity would go out. So sun goes down, rain starts, electricity goes out. That was, that was the, uh, <laughs> that was that's, how it went. That's a great way to live. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> mind, uh, I wouldn't mind living there. Um, you know, unplug, unplug, start talking to people you care about, spend some yeah. time with them and then go to bed at a reasonable hour. Yeah, you know, uh, try new things. That was where I had uh, Kopi Luwak coffee, the uh, the poop coffee. <laughs> mm. Heard about I've, that, I've yeah. done some crazy. I've done some crazy things. I I don't know that I would. I mean, I've done snake wine. I've done beluga. I've done a century egg. Yeah. But I don't know if I would do poop coffee. I just don't <laughs> don't know about that. <laughs> Well, I was there, it was available, and uh, and I'm like, I'll n- probably never have an opportunity to do this again. And so I uh, decided to take the plunge. It wasn't bad. It was it was pretty decent coffee. But, uh, um, but yeah. Um, yeah, because the, the, the civet eats the berry, and uh, but can't digest the bean. And so the bean comes out whole and untouched. You just have to clean it, and then you make coffee from it. But because uh, they only eat the best berries, so it the, the theory is is that they're pooping out the best uh, coffee beans. <laughs> to each his own. Yeah. Each their own. <laughs> yes. Because I can't digest corn, and I'm not going to stomach. No. <laughs> but you have to ask yourself: with something like that, something like that, who was the first person? to start picking up those beans and deciding they were going to go ahead and use them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I, I love coffee. I love coffee, yeah. but I, I no, those beans are done. I'm sorry. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to have my coffee. I, I, part of why I chose the, the, I, I have a, I have a uh, workspace in a, in a, uh, um, in a shared office uh, um, uh, facility, and they have a big old coffee machine, and it's broken down twice in like the last few weeks, and it's just distressing when it happens because I've well, got to have it. Well, you need. I have. I have a kettle to heat the water, and I have a French press sitting right there over here in my office. I so. love my French press. 
Yeah, if I um, want coffee anytime I want, I can make myself coffee right here. Yeah. Just as long as I've got electricity, that's the only Oh, see, now, uh, I, was, uh, I was making cold brew for a while. And uh, uh, which uh, is is awesome. You don't need uh, you don't need electricity. All you do is you you steep the coffee grounds in it, and uh, you leave it for a day, and uh, and then you have coffee. That was the. Well, what did you have though, the day before? You have to you have to keep up with it. You have to have two sets of uh, containers yeah. so that when one's empty, you can start making the next batch. But uh, um, but the thing I liked about it is is it's less acidic. So, uh, so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't give me tummy troubles, but, uh, um, <laughs> other people's problems, other yeah. people's problems. Yes. But, uh, um, but yeah. Uh, and it's more, got more caffeine in it. So I guess there's that <laughs> the, the heat, the heat, uh, from brewing the coffee actually destroys some of the caffeine in it. Okay. <clears throat> little, little trivia there. It'll probably never help anybody. <laughs> yeah, we don't. They don't have trivia contests here. They've never done that. Well, they did it one time, and it was it was horrendous. But um, <laughs> people trying to entertain themselves. Um, no, I was going to ask you, uh, Alan, about the uh, about uh, your B and B because I'm actually thinking about getting into the resort business. Um, out in uh, out in Missouri, uh, there's a place I'm looking at that's got uh, got a restaurant, an RV park, and and a little motel and boat docks and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, it's a lot of moving enjoy- parts. Yeah, a lot of moving <laughs> parts. A lot of moving parts. I can't do anything simply. I'm sorry, that yeah. doesn't work. But uh, um, but how do you enjoy it? Well, I, I love it. Um, you know, I, my, my wife is the primary for that because I have okay. my, my own stuff, but I'm mm-hmm. there. In fact, she's going to go to uh, Jazz Fest this weekend in Boquete and leave me there alone. Um, <laughs> and I've had, I've had as many as 15, and my staff was off, and I had to make breakfast for 15 people uh, nice. and clean rooms and do all that. So sometimes you're, <laughs> you're everybody. Uh, so the fewer moving parts, the, the better, the better right. it is. We're, we're six bedrooms, uh, each with their own shower. Um, so that works out pretty well for people to have a private room. Uh, yeah. We have a full kitchen upstairs, and then we serve uh, basic American-style breakfast, you know, so everything you'd, you'd want for breakfast. Okay. And um, so, you know, we're on a few of the booking engines out there, and so we're getting guests booking through those. And um, we have our own website, so people can book through that, lulabb.com. And it's a beautiful Caribbean. Yeah, it's a beautiful Caribbean style house. We sit across the street from the water. So right now you have a water view from the front patio, front porch. There's a porch upstairs and a porch downstairs. Um, all the rooms are like in a shotgun hallway. Uh, each of them's air conditioned, hot water, Wi-Fi. You know, those basic things that people want. Um, yeah. And yeah, people come to the island. They you know they'll go to their rooms. They sleep. They go to dinner. We recommend places. Uh, they have a good stay. We see them in the morning. Usually they'll come down and we'll have some conversations with them. We might see them other parts of the day, but for the most part, people are out and about doing tours and checking out the islands. So it's pretty cool. cool. You know, they come down and have a good time. Um, we've just now been running it for about a year and a half. So we're, we're getting our sea legs under us, if you will. It was, um, it was a little challenging at first. Uh, we've learned a lot over the first year and a half uh, because neither of us had really run anything like this. 
Uh, it had been a bed and breakfast for a long, long time. So there was that. Um, so we did have some infrastructure here, but we pretty much had to figure everything out from scratch because the previous owners weren't around anymore. Uh, when mm. we bought it, we spent about a year fixing it up. So we got it up to a standard and now, you know, basically trying to run it uh, as best we can. And uh, we're getting good reviews and we're getting repeat clients. And so it's, it's pretty cool. Awesome. Well done. Yeah. But the fewer moving parts you have, I'm just going to tell you that Bill is the fewer moving parts, <laughs> the better. Uh, yeah. because every little bit of complexity that you add is, is just another thing that can go wrong. And, um, so when you're trying to run, and in your case, those are multiple businesses, you know, running yeah. a, running a marina, running a resort, running a, a restaurant. I would, I would never wish that on anybody. Um, <laughs> I, I was in the restaurant business for a while and I just know again, how many moving parts there are to a kitchen and how many things can go wrong yeah. and, what happens when it does go wrong uh, and you start ruining your a reputation for a restaurant. Um, it's, there's, there's no easy clawback after that. So yeah. um, a lot of moving parts, get good people, uh, get your mm. recipes, own the recipes so that if right. your good cook leaves, you still know how to make what they made. <laughs> You'll see too yeah. many friends that are, that are in that situation where they bring in a chef and everybody loves the chef. And then, they have a falling out and the chef leaves and it's like, okay, I can't serve you anything that's on the menu. Uh, so right. we don't have a hamburger um, <laughs> until he hires <laughs> another chef and then still doesn't have the recipes. But um, yeah. so own your recipes, own have control of how the business is run, but it's a lot of moving parts. So get ready for a challenge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, any uh, any good resources out there that uh, that would help somebody uh, looking to start a B and B or or a restaurant or anything like that? Well, there there are some Facebook groups, but most of those are the the gripe and bitch kind of uh, uh. You know, rant and rave kind of people. <laughs> it's like I can't believe this guest you know did this or mm -hmm. and and you're reading it and you're kind of like, well, I completely understand why a guest would do that. Why would why would you think they would do otherwise? <laughs> um, I mean, I literally, some people believe that, okay, if you stay at their house and you stay there and they live in the property that, you know, basically you would not watch TV after 10 o'clock or that you're literally going to take the garbage to the dump rather than just leave it in the garbage can and let them clean up. Even after they charged you a $75 cleaning fee, they expect you to clean it. So there's a lot of crazy people out there trying to do this. But you're going to have crazy, crazy stories. Like we had a guy yeah. who checked in. He was, he'd come down here because one of the women's, one of these women was staying with us longer term. And he came down to, he came down from Canada and he wanted to stay booked a week and he stayed for the week, but they had a falling out about midway through the first week. <laughs> and so he went out and apparently found himself a woman, uh, that would, that would take, um, financial reward for, uh, services. Mm -hmm. uh, went back up to his room. Uh, she either drugged him or something. He passed out, um, took all of his money. Wow. Uh, which is about $1,300. Um, he wanted to find this person. So he started putting out fillers for who this person might be. <laughs> we had video surveillance so we could see who it was, you know, see the person. So, you know, we started asking around only to find out that this was a transvestite. <laughs> uh, 
So he got rolled by a transvestite in Lula's. Wow. Um, that's not normal. Uh, that's a that's a one off story. But just and that's just something right you here. bring upon yourself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're when you're looking for somebody who will uh, who will do whatever for financial uh, gain, uh, you're you're, you're kind of asking for trouble. I think. Yeah, they'll I do whatever. The, I just want to see the tucking job. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Why no, would you no, want to see that? No, I don't know. <laughs> I just want to see. I want to see what messed him up. I want to see. Was it out there? I think he was already messed up. I don't. I don't yeah. think that's the question. And yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, it was, it was just. Yeah, it was kind of one of those things. Of he he got to the he got to the end of his week, and and we sort of said, you know, this is probably a good time for you to move on uh, to some other mm -hmm. location because we we don't have space for you here. Um, yeah, the I get to have those we reserve the right. So I, yeah, <laughs> so I have some very specific jobs at Lula's. I carry the heavy stuff. I carry bags upstairs for the client and the, the guests. Um, I carry water. Um, and when someone does something that they don't need to be staying at Lula's anymore, I get to be the the guy. Um, <laughs> As it should be. Pull on my, I pull my years of audit experience out. The most say, okay, hated man the, in the company. The most, yes. <laughs> Nine years out of ten. Wow. That's amazing. Well, if it's just you and your wife, then that's really not a bad thing to be the most hated person in the company. So. Well, yeah, that, that's going to be absolute. I, you know, like when I was making breakfast for people, I had 15 people I'm making breakfast, and I said, I'm sorry you guys are getting fourth string here. Because uh, we do have two staff that come in and run the oh, kitchen okay. and do clean rooms most of the time, but we just happened in this situation. We had we had told them, okay, they get to take their vacations off. So when they when there's a holiday, they get their days <laughs> off instead of working right. on their holidays. Um, and so we had made that decision, and then my wife had to make a, a quick trip back to the states, and they were right. off, and we were full, and it was, we were over full, like at full capacity. Fifteen is as many as we can take. Wow. And so, yeah, it was a very busy morning for me. Um, I got up, I actually got up about 5.30 in the morning and started prep work for breakfast that starts at 8. Um, <laughs> but I got through it. You know, I got through yeah. it. No one complained. No one got food poisoning. Um, Yay! Win-win. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So that was fourth string. But, uh, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely am. Um, and then we have our dog Buster, who's our director of entertainment. Okay. He's also part-time director of security, uh, that's shared with our other dog, Angel. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's like staying in our home and people really do like the fact that it feels like they're in, in home and they, you know, feel comfortable and have a nice place and know there's people that nice. take care of them. Nice. Yeah, I've worked. Uh, I've worked. Uh, helped run a campground years ago now, but uh, um, but yeah, and it, it was a lot of fun and learned a lot about the food part of uh, of the business. There, um, the uh, the director of the camp, um, he his philosophy was keep their feet dry and their tummies full, and uh, I think that's a pretty decent philosophy, really. Um, that that says about yeah. all of it. <laughs> well, when it, when the guests come down, my first words: How'd you sleep? And right. most of them will say, I slept great. And I'll be like, good, the job's halfway done. Now go get some yep. breakfast. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's about the size of it. Bed part's done. So, now it's time yeah. for breakfast. Yeah. Yes. Right in the title. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, gentlemen, it has uh, it has been real and it's been fun, but we've gone almost the full two hours, and uh, which is uh, amazing. That's not something I've done in a while. Um, but uh, so uh, so we'll come to a close. Uh, as I always do, I will ask the question: Do you fine gentlemen have any last words for the fine people, uh, Mr. Meisner? Oh, we may have lost him. Uh oh, Alan? Well, yeah, I'm here. I'm oh, here. Okay, uh, very good. I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let William go first. Oh, um, I suppose my sister would throttle me if I didn't actually publicize the book. Uh, so if anybody's interested <laughs> in a science fiction action story that uh, gets into a little bit of the technical background behind AI and how it works, because they're interested in learning that, um, it's a good read. Uh, my uh, female readers have all said it's very friendly to the female audience as well, despite being a, a sort of action techno thriller type of story. So uh, right. Outsiders um, by me, William Collier, uh, any major online platform, especially eBooks, first, uh, first volumes, quite cheap. So check cool. it out. Okay, wccollier.com. The link is in the description. And Alan? Well, I'll make sure that that hits my Amazon today. Um, well, oh, so I'll, um, I'll have that shipped down. Enjoy. And actually get things pretty good. So uh, I will definitely be reading it soon. Paperback but, is expensive. Uh, Kindle is much cheaper. Okay. Well, <laughs> we actually have a book. We actually also run a book exchange at Lula. So oh, locals nice. will read the books. So would love give you to a get little the bit paperback more down there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll pony up the money. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I guess the thing I would say is just realize that um, there's there. I I grew up with a whole mindset of okay, success in business is success in everything, um, and that's not true. Um, you you have to find happiness where you can get it. Um, hug your family, love your kids, treat everybody with kindness and love. Um, and that's going to come back to you. It's always going to come back to you uh, tenfold. So don't always be chasing the dollar. Chase the passion that you have in your life, because in the end, no one's going to write your obituary and tell them how many dollars you made and how rich you were, um, but they'll remember how you treated them and how you made them feel. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Christianity is objectively true. Okay. Is uh it's beautiful, true. I love uh, Jesus. And uh, if I take a transvestite name tucked in, do I get a discount? No. Uh, I don't think I get a Do not bring another transvestite into the establishment. <laughs> this is another, like I took one before. We, we, we do have a ban list. I'm just telling you, we've had to create a ban list. I never thought I would have to ban someone from Lula's, but we, wow. we've got a couple Welcome people on that world. list right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's terrible because, you know what, uh, there's some beautiful women, and then they tell you they're a boy, like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a game I have to worry about. Not a game I have to worry about. Spoken like yeah, a true gangster. From... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love you guys, and uh, Jesus says to love each other, and I love you like Jesus wants us to love each other, and peace and love be with you. And may all your businesses thrive, and you become uh, better than Le Elon Musk, whatever the name is. <laughs> hey, 
Amen. Actually, for for William, I think we should uh, should be uh, wishing that he doesn't have any business for your uh, for your. Oh, no, that would uh, take all the fun out safe. of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I had a roommate that was a cop. They, they, they need something. <laughs> they need something. Every Aren't single day. sit in the trunk for 11 hours? No, 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 no. You know, someone, some, <laughs> someone, broke dipstick. someone broke the dipstick at the fire at the, at the, at the local uh, service station, and you got eight police cars there just because that's the only thing going on that night. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at moving to one place, uh, uh, South Bend, Oregon, because um, there was some property up there that uh, that was pretty uh, pretty inexpensive, and uh, and it just looked beautiful. And and I found out there are all of two police officers <laughs> in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we so, do a little uh, better better than that. I think we've got five on duty. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely Mayberry, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, but anyway, well, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. Uh, thank you, all viewers and listeners, uh, for uh, for tuning in and uh, sticking with us through the uh, through the expanse. Um, go to wccollier.com and buy some books. Go to uh, go to forty plusfitness.com and forty plusfitnesspodcast.com. To, uh, to find out more about uh, what Alan does, and uh, oh, and uh, and the resort website is lulabb.com. So uh, take a trip down to uh, down to a, a, a Panamanian uh, island in the Caribbean. That sounds like Panamanian uh, sounds like paradise. Panamanian it, paradise. It is. It is gorgeous here. I, that's all I'm <laughs> Well, uh, everyone, uh, be safe out there. Remember to wash your hands and stay tuned for the ending credits. Safety third. Thank you all for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Bald Spots Productions. I would like to thank my producer, my beloved mother, Eileen Hatch. I, of course, am your humble host. I'd really like to thank my Ed McMahon, Rudy Corlew. Yes. I'd especially like to thank my special guests, Alan Meisner and William Collier. Support the show if you feel so led over on Patreon.com, where you're known as Bald Spots Pro. Don't you dare miss YWL Online. You can find us on Facebook and wherever fine podcasts are offered. Tune in next time for a very special episode with Mary Jackson. Be sure to like, comment, and share. You know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you've got to do to kick that algorithm into gear and help us reach more people. If you or someone you know needs support now, call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. 988 is the Suicide and Mental Health Crisis Lifeline here in the States.